City Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Daniel chapter 4, verses 19 through 37, and the sermon title is, The Humble Can Be Restored. We hope you are blessed by the message today. When Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him, the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth." And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound by a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we are aware, many of us in this room are aware that you are the most high, and uh, many of us have already been humbled in many ways in our lives, but we're asking collectively as a body, Lord, humble us again. Lord, humble us, God. Give us a lowly spirit, lowly hearts. God, we Many of us need restoration today. Some, maybe even in greater ways than others, to be restored from sin and from how those sins have brought consequences and those consequences are ravaging our lives and we need restoration. Some of us just need to see today just a a clearer picture of your majesty and how you deal with sin and how the scripture tells us to deal with sin I pray that you would minister to this body, that the gospel of all things would be the most clear, 
that Christ would be exalted in each of our hearts and in our eyes and our understanding, and that, Holy Spirit, you would teach us. Teach us today according to your word. Help us to walk in righteousness and to walk according to your will. God, call us away from our own sin and our own wills and uh, redeem, redeem us, God. Strengthen this church. So thank you for your word and what you're going to do today through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So if you're, again, first time with us, um, we have been journeying through Daniel. And uh, we started several weeks ago. And and we do primarily teach expositorily through the scriptures. And so here we are in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. And we'll uh, do a great job uh, reading all of that scripture, Asia. All the Belteshazzars came out great. Um, so, <laughs> this, yeah. Um, so let's dive in, guys. This is, this is a great... So the title of the message is The, the Humble Can Be Restored. Teaching through Old Testament books, it's, it's, there's a temptation to, and I was talking with a brother this morning, to just simply find a neat little application and draw it out as though the, the Old Testament isn't enough by itself to just read it, like we were to read the New Testament. So let's just make sure we understand that this is a real uh, historical record of something that actually happened, and it is God's word, and it is powerful, and it is able to uh, do what God intends for it to do. But that is the primary thrust of what we're looking at in the sermon is the ability that what God can do and what God does to restore the humble in heart. Specifically, we're going to look at that in the context of of sin. Scripture tells us exactly what to do when we're face-to-face with the truth from God about sin in our lives. Scripture is very clear. If there's sin in our life, if there's sin around us, if we're experiencing it in any way, whether internally, whether our own choices or people around us are in sin, we are not left without instruction on what to do, how we are to do it. God's truth is available for us. And this goes for believers in Christ and those who are living in unbelief and willful sin against God. That God tells us that both the believer in Christ has equipped, been equipped by the word on what to do if there's sin, and then also if you're here this morning, and by chance you're here as a non-believer, you're exploring, or you're rebellious against God, you're turned from him, and you're not walking in his will, you're avoiding his word, then God, God tells you what to do as well. The word that God gives in both cases is you probably guessed it. Repent. Repent. That's for both believers and unbelievers. If you're in Christ this morning, then you have not only repented of a life of sin, but you're also still repenting of sin every day. If you're a believer in Christ, and maybe this is more of a you should be, uh, an instruction. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't just hang your life upon that one time that you said, I'm sorry, God. But the gospel is taking root in you so that every day you see your life in comparison to a perfect holy God, which means there's, there's stuff to repent of every day. Every day, God, I'm not like you. I still fall short. Thank you for Jesus for completely filling that gap and making me righteous. But man, I do not make the right decisions. I turn from you. I, my heart is still filled with remaining sin that needs to be sanctified. And I need to be changed. And so there's continual repentance. And I hope that's the case for you. If not, that's a discipleship issue. And you need someone to walk alongside you and teach you how to repent daily. Daily to have a heart of repentance. Because there's no such thing as a habitually unrepentant follower of Jesus Christ. Did you guys hear that? A habitually unrepentant follower of Jesus Christ is an oxymoron. You can't be unrepentant of sin and follow Jesus at the same time. And if you're trying to, then what you're doing is you're, you're, you have a serious wrestling match going on, and there's a huge question mark over your spiritual life. A huge question mark, which I would prefer there to be no question mark over my life, but to be confidently and boldly walking in the will of God for the sake of His glory. And when there's sin in my life, to repent of it and to turn from it. But... One can struggle for a season. 
Some of you may be thinking, well, I've struggled. There's been seasons in my life where I have not repented of sin. And that is certainly something that can happen. We can struggle for a season, fighting against sin, warring with the flesh. But that sin is going to get dealt with because the Spirit of Christ has taken up residence in that, in that person. So, in light of grace, we repent. And in our context, in this text with Nebuchadnezzar, he has been informed, we saw last week, he's already been informed that his dream is very, very horrifying. He himself was terrified out of this place of peace and prosperity. He had this dream in the middle of the night that woke him up and shook him to the core, and he is terrified. We know from today that this dream is every much as horrifying as he thought, but also more. See, he was horrified without the interpretation. Then Daniel gives the interpretation, and it becomes even more real. It was beyond just a thought in his head. Wow, that's scary. Now it becomes personal for him. God is going to bring judgment upon him. That's ultimately what he's hearing. God's going to bring judgment upon him. And why is that? Look at verse 27 in that text. It says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So in that text, right there in verse 27, we see that the reason, what is happening, what he's being called to is repentance from sin. Nebuchadnezzar is in a life of sin, and this whole dream comes upon him, and God, through Daniel, says, you need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from your sin. Break off, and we're going to talk more about that. But it's because of his sin. And what was his sin? His sin. We know he was a prideful man. That there were many sins, of course, outside of this, no doubt. But apparently, that, what God was not pleased with is that in his pride and his vain glory, he lacked mercy for those who were oppressed. That's a specific thing that Daniel calls out. That break from your sins, but then walk in righteous, righteousness and begin to show mercy to the oppressed. Because we can imagine in a place that Nebuchadnezzar is in, in all of his glory and his riches and his splendor, that he is then pushed aside those that were in his culture, in the community, in his city, in this empire, that truly needed mercy and that were oppressed and that were on the margins. And there is something about that. When God gets a hold of a heart, that heart is humbled and we see the world through the eyes of Christ. And who did Christ reach out to? Those who were the most needy, those who were the poor and the oppressed and the hated and the despised. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of Christ. One way we can know that God has done something in our hearts is how we see those who are the weak in the world, that are weak and that are pushed aside and those who are struggling the most. Our heart for them is tender and compassionate and we show mercy on those who are most needy. And that is the heart of Christ. We also have a more complete picture. We understand that everybody in the world is unrighteous because of sin, and all people are needy. So we have this massive worldview of everyone needs Christ and is poor, ultimately has nothing without Jesus, but also those who are physically oppressed. And so that was called out as a specific sin and something that Nebuchadnezzar was to do. So God, in his mercy, has Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's life to tell him and warn him of judgment that is coming if he does not turn from his sin. That's the major premise of what's happening here. So what I want to talk about this morning, that, and really that's what we're going to look at, is dealing rightly with sin. Dealing rightly with sin. And what that does is when we begin to humble ourselves, we see God restore. We see God restore. So I have a few points. We'll throw them on the screen. The first point is this. Daniel was compassionate toward the sinful king. He was compassionate. We see it right in verse 19. So if you go back to the beginning of the text where we began to read. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dis dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him the king answered and said Belteshazzar let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you Belteshazzar answered and said my lord may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies Daniel cared now this is something that should Cause us to think a little bit about the, the miracle, the kind of heart change that God could bring upon a person to have compassion and care in this situation. Remember, the context of Daniel being in Babylon and the years that he's lived there, and he's seen the oppression that the king has brought. He himself had experienced that, having been brought into captivity. 
but this is so important, to be compassionate upon the unrepentant, knowing what is coming to them should they never turn from their sin. So to be compassionate on, upon the unrepentant. How easy is it for us to look around us and see those that are unrepentant in a place maybe of serious sin and to lack all compassion for them and to then somehow elevate ourselves and be prideful. Like, wow, I've conquered that sin. I can't believe you haven't. Or wow, I, you know, I'm so, I'm so glad that I'm not where you are. Or it's some, some grievous sin and it's hard and it's hurtful. So we forget that we were once in a place just like they were. And only by the grace of God are we rescued. Now this is incredible, right? It's incredible that Daniel feels this way, knowing his backstory. This is something only Christ can do in a person. Only Jesus can change our heart and give us that sort of heart and perspective about people. How many of us today need help with being compassionate on people who have wronged us? Maybe that's you. Maybe right now you're thinking, I, I, that's, that, is, that is me. So I want to challenge you to not wonder who are the other people that this applies to, but really search your heart. Who is it in this room? Who needs this sort of reminder? Because we need help being compassionate on people who have wronged us or are wronging us right now on a personal level or on a national scale. All of those levels. Having compassion. And thinking in this way that we won't have compassion on them because they deserve what's coming to them. And we only think about their judgment. Only the gospel can give someone that kind of compassion. Because it's only the gospel that teaches that every human being, good or bad, is equally deserving of God's wrath. Every human being is equally deserving of God's wrath. That truth is a gospel, scriptural truth that you will not hear anywhere in the world coming from the world. But every person, regardless of what has been done or not, how good or bad you are, is equally condemned under sin, apart from Christ, and deserving the wrath and the judgment of God. It's a gospel truth. This is what scripture teaches. But to be under the grace of God in Christ and forgiven of our sins, knowing that you have offended a holy God, but by grace you're now a son or daughter, there's no greater gap that's ever been crossed. And Jesus covered that. He filled that. He dealt with that gap, that major issue between us and a holy God and our sin that separated us from him. He did that. So how can we look at anybody's sin and say, go get them, God? Anybody. It doesn't matter what position of power they're in. And I guarantee you, we've all done this. We've all, it's crossed our mind with some leader, some power, some person. Get him. But if Daniel, in this situation with Nebuchadnezzar, looks at him and says, Oh God, oh Nebuchadnezzar, may this not be for you. May it be for your enemies. I don't want to see this come upon you. I don't want to see this sort of thing happen to you. What I want to see is repentance and restoration. Well, my, my, my heart's desire because of what Christ has done in me is that you would be radically changed and saved by the grace and the mercy of God. And that's Daniel's heart. Vengeance is the Lord's, Scripture says. Vengeance is God's. And that frees us of that horrible burden of thinking it's ours, and it allows us to walk like Jesus did with compassion on sinners. That it's for God to deal with. Vengeance is his. If he's to repay someone for their work, for what they've done, it is God's to do. But thank God he is merciful. Otherwise, none of us would be in Christ. We should genuinely care for people who are in sin. Thinking of this phrase again, oh, I wish this dream wasn't about you, King Nebuchadnezzar. I wish it wasn't about you. Caring and showing compassion, it puts us in the right place to then begin to bring truth. And that's where Daniel started. He started with compassion. Number two, Daniel was compassionate, but he still spoke the hard truth about Nebuchadnezzar's sin. He was compassionate, but he didn't end with just compassion and feeling bad for him. He went from there to then telling him what needed to be said. And I'm sure, I'm sure you've been in that situation. Someone's telling you about something they've done or something that happened to them, and you begin to hear the reality of, of what... You might want to say, I hear, you want to say it to them, 
something to steer them in the right direction, but you don't do it. You ever been there? You know you should say something. Something should come out of your mouth because you hear a person either gloating about their pride or their sin or what they've done or they're about to do something and you're like, wait, that's, ooh, that's sin. Oof. That's sin. That's wrong. They're gonna, that's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt others. It's going to kill them. It's, it's going to ruin them. But for whatever reason, we become weak in those moments and we don't say it and we just become compassionate. Oh, I'm so sorry you're in that situation. Oh, I'm so sorry. Or whatever it is. And sometimes it's, it's more clear-cut than that. Someone's in sin, and you know it, but you do not call them out on their sin because you might offend them. You, you don't say anything about the sin that they're in, and, and you don't begin with a heart of compassion, but not only that, but you don't even think about the greater, the greater damage that's going to come because you, you think you might offend them. But that's not compassion or love to keep that silent. Daniel hears this dream, and he knows what it means, and he doesn't speak in general terms. Let's look at what the text says. Verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reaches to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. Verse 22, it is you, this is you, king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. So he doesn't speak in general terms. Like, hey, you know how when people are like really proud and they get absorbed in themselves and you know, that's like really not cool. He didn't say that to him. <laughs> hey, you know, you know, king, like, you know how people are like prideful? And it could ruin their lives. No. He, he says, King, this dream is about you. You are this person. You are this man who's caught up in your own empire and your own sin. He sees the sin that is surrounding Nebuchadnezzar. He hates that it is about him. He wishes that it wasn't about him. But in the end, of the, uh, he says it is about him. Now, we are a disciple-making church. We believe this is at the, the heart of our mission. And we're also an evangelistic church, meaning that we believe that our church, each member, and this is where evangelism begins, is that every member of God's body is a missionary. We go and we proclaim the gospel and we call people to Christ. And both of these aspects, disciple-making, so how you relate to each other as brothers and sisters and help each other walk in Christ, and how you go and you call new people into the kingdom to follow Jesus, both of these will require us to be compassionate and truthful when it comes to dealing with sin and the consequence of sin. This principle is part and such an important part of what we believe is the mission of the church. So we have to get this. We have to understand this. When we only speak in generalities, what happens? We coddle sin and we don't take it seriously. So my encouragement to you and to us as a body is to speak those hard truths into people's lives and do it with a heart of grace and a heart of love with the purpose of pointing people to Jesus Christ. But they must be said. We must take sin seriously. The third point, Daniel's, Daniel counseled the king toward true repentance and the hope of restoration. So he began with a heart of compassion. Then he moves towards speaking the truth. King, this is about you. But then his counsel toward him was about repentance and the hope of restoration. This is such an amazing, complete picture of how we can and should speak with those around us that are in sin or struggling with sin and how we also ought to hope that people would deal with us and, and, and speak with us and counsel us. And this is often the, the prophetic pattern, the, the pattern of prophetic warning in the scriptures. You have the warning, which he was given, along with the impending consequence for not repenting, which he was given, and then the hope of what could be if and when you repent. And I think that's a great thing for us to just hold on to. 
If we're going to warn people or talk to people about sin, it should include all of these things. The warning, turn from sin. The compassion there at the beginning. What is going to happen if they don't turn from sin? The consequence that Scripture gives us. And then, don't leave this part out. God can restore. God can fill you. He can restore you. He can cleanse you if you repent, if you humble yourself, and you turn from your sin. So here's a few scriptures that help to kind of align this. All through scripture we see this kind of pattern. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Ezekiel 18, 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the God or the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. A little bit before that, Ezekiel 18, 27. Again, when a wicked person turns away from his wickedness, he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. There's the reality of what is coming and the warning from God, and Scripture's clear about that, but the turning from sin and to God is where there's hope and restoration. And then lastly here in Daniel 4, verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Imagine that. Just thinking, saying that to the king. You, your prosperity could be lengthened. Now, we're not a health, wealth, and prosperity preaching church, but you can't get around the fact that God says, when you do it my way, you will be blessed. When you do your life, you live your life according to my will, God will bless you. And it may be material blessing or elevation to some platform where you preach the gospel and you have a greater influence or it may just be a life of spiritual blessing in the midst of your poverty and hardship that you cling to Christ and you have the riches of the gospel and God fills you with everything that you need in that place and we learn to be content in both places but he's telling the king all of this could be avoided if you humble yourself before God and so it is with us that we avoid so much heartache and pain if we would just stay humble before the Lord, seeking his will and his way above our own. And I know you can think of uh, many times and many things in your life that you could have avoided hardship and pain and circumstances that were directly tied to pride and not seeking the will of the Lord. But Daniel preaches the heart of true repentance here. Let me just read down through a few more of these just so we can make sure we get the context. He gives them the interpretation of the dream he, in, in verse 22. It is you, O king. You, you have become strong. He, then the consequence that this is going to happen. This, your life, ultimately your kingdom will be chopped down. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel preaches the heart of true repentance. He tells him to break off of his sins by practicing righteousness. The message we preach isn't just, hey, stop sinning. Think about that. Remember that. The message that we say to people or that we would hope would be said to us in our sin is not just, hey, stop sinning. That's part of repentance. But that is not the complete understanding of the doctrine of repentance, just stopping what you're doing. If that were the case, we would all be okay with every worldly program that just helps people stop. But there's another piece to that 
The message is repent and turn to Christ. Repent and turn to Christ. Turn away from what is hurting you and walk toward what is able to heal you. So repentance, what is it then? Repentance happens when after turning from sin, a person begins to walk in obedience to Christ, trusting in the power of Christ, leaning on the forgiveness of Christ. It's not just a stopping, but it's then a turning to that incredible grace and power of God that is in Jesus Christ to then overcome sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So to forsake the sin, to turn away from it, to confess it, confess it to who? To confess it to God above all things. So let me invite you this morning Trusting in God's sovereign timing and his word that is perfect. Invite you this morning to break off from any sins that you're in and practice righteousness. I think that is a necessary and wonderful call and it's the grace of God that we have this gift of repentance available to us and given to us by the grace of God. So if you are in sin, if there's a sin, and you may call it little, big, it's not that big of a deal, don't look at anybody else. Just look at God. Look at the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. If you're walking in sin, no matter the sin, whether it's unbelief or pride or pornography, or apathy, or laziness, or a way that you're treating your spouse or your kids, you're cheating on your taxes, <laughs> or on somebody else. You, we, we don't get that liberty to say this is a small sin or a big sin. We just want people to be people who walk in righteousness and walk in repentance. Whatever that sin is, it's hurting you. It's killing your soul. The scripture that we read, even this counsel to Nebuchadnezzar, break off from that sin. Break off in the way that Jesus told you to do so. Even he himself says that if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, for it is better for you to enter eternity with one eye than into hellfire with both eyes. That teaching from Christ even tells us, though it's metaphorical, it teaches us the principle extremely well that sin is serious. Even in Jesus' words, we see that there are real consequences for not turning from our sin, and we don't want to be a people who coddle sin. And, and whether you've examined this or not and realized that there, I mean, it is becoming more and more so that churches are willing, bodies like us are willing to allow sin to creep in and say nothing about it and just hope that people live good, prosperous, happy lives. And the, and the way that the world says to live happy is to not confront anybody on doing something that they want to do. But scripture calls us to holiness to walk like Christ. And so we, we must say this. Church, we must take this seriously. With Nebuchadnezzar, it's been laid out very clearly. He's going to lose his sanity. That's the consequence. And he will be brought so low that he's eating grass like an ox and drenched with the dew of heaven and will be this way for seven years. That's what he's saying. This is the warning. This is what's coming, O king. Very clear, this dream is about you. But there's hope of restoration. Look at 26. As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know the heavens rule. He told them, even in the prophecy, I will restore you. I will, I will bring this back. From, the, from when? From the time that you know heaven rules. That's the point in which you'll begin to see restoration. But even with this knowledge, he does not turn. Isn't that incredible? Even with that, 
Even with that truth just laid out before him, he does not turn. But in fact, he embraces his sin even more. He stays in it. Sadly, this is the pattern that someone could hear and even know that God is not pleased with them, with their situation, with their sin. That God is not pleased with their choices and still they run headlong into their sin. And we've seen it, haven't we? And we've been that person, having been warned, seeing the grace of God and then still saying, I love my sin. I love what I'm doing. I love my life. Why would I want to change that? And this just goes to show us what? That repentance is not merely an act of the human will, but an act of God's will, ultimately. An act of God's sovereign will. He gives repentance as a gift, and he does it at the right time. That truth is best examined in hindsight, isn't it? Every believer in this room who has lived a life of sin and has now been rescued from it, and though you struggle with it and you fight against it, you can look back and say, though you had 8, 10, 15 years of that sin, you know God saved you at the right time. He brought you to repentance at exactly the right time. I don't know any believer in Christ who loves the word of God who would say, God saved me too late. I don't know a person that's ever said that. Why? Because we know God is perfect in his timing, even allowing us years of damage. That's God's perspective. Also in scripture, we're never told, take your time, live a life of sin, Eventually it'll happen. Never. Today is always the day of repentance. Always is today the day of repentance. To turn from sin and turn to Christ. But he gives it as a gift. And so from our perspective, it's always the right time to repent. That's from our perspective. Because God's word declares it to be the case. From God's perfect vantage point, he warns the king, but he knows seven years are going to pass. And God's going to use that seven years of eating grass like an ox and incredible humiliation, being stripped of all his authority, humiliated, before he truly comes to see that God rules everything. Look at verse 28. We'll read down to verse 31. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. What a, what a picture. I wish I knew the images that were in some of your heads. <laughs> Think of it. What would that look like? I don't know. Something out of fair? Like, come, come, come see the, the dude with feathers and, I mean, I've, anyway. Ripley, Ripley's, believe it or not. But this isn't just a story. This isn't just a myth. This is a, this is a historical account. You know, it's interesting. This was a last-minute tidbit, but there is a, a seven-year gap of silence on Nebuchadnezzar's history. Did you know that? You can see it in historical record. There's a seven-year gap in historical record. Isn't that cool? Look it up for yourself. All of this comes upon Nebuchadnezzar. What? What does this tell us? That God does what He says. He does exactly what he says. And the purpose of it all is made clear in verse 32, that Nebuchadnezzar might know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So there's a beautiful ending to this story, right? And then that's, that's, we're gonna, that's why I wanted to cover the whole chapter. I don't want to leave us hanging again, again on this cliffhanger. But there's a beautiful ending. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And this is the song. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. 
and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, even after what God had done, has come to an amazing reality that many of us need to still come to. That no matter what we have even gone through, or the evil or the hardship that has been allowed in our lives, not even Nebuchadnezzar questioned God. So to come to a place where we say, God, you're the one who rules heaven. You rule all things. And none can stay his hand or say, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my lords, sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amen to that. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. So there came a point as he's in his humiliation brought on by his own sin that he believed that Daniel's God is the most high God. That's what we see here. And that he rules over all. Now I've said this a couple times. Still, um, you know, what, where, what was Nebuchadnezzar's eternal state? Where will he be? Will we see this guy in the glories of heaven? I, I hope so. There's, a, I think, a good thing that these types of scriptures give us is that one, God can save people like Nebuchadnezzar and like the Apostle Paul. He can save the worst of the worst because his grace is greater. His grace is incredible. But when he brings judgment and he shows his power through guys like Pharaoh and he judges them and they don't come to Christ and God sovereignly uses Pharaoh's life to point Israel to the greatness of God, that's also within God's sovereign power and his will and he's still glorified. But the text says that he blessed God and praised and honored him. And he spoke these words in verse 34. And we've already read those. But look, at, at, yeah, we don't need to read it again. As a result of his repentance, though, and his restoration, God did increase his wealth, which I think is just incredible. He increased his splendor, his majesty, and his influence. Says that all of the people of the kingdom were restored to him. They came to him again. So his influence was Restored, But instead of using it for himself, he used it to extol God for his mighty works. Now, you may have already recognized this, but we just walked through the gospel in this text. One thing that's amazing about the Old Testament is when we're reading it with eyes open, with understanding of Christ, we see Christ in all of Scripture. But just as a recap, we're no better than Nebuchadnezzar. We are ultimately, in our heart of hearts, before Christ saved us, even if you're in Christ, none of us are any better than Nebuchadnezzar. Our sin deserves just as much judgment as his. And though we are sinners, God has brought hope to the world. God has brought hope to us by sending Christ into the world. He's brought hope, but at the same time, he's also warned the whole world by sending Christ. There's warning and blessing through Jesus his perfect life and his law-keeping, it reminds us that we are sinners. We look at Christ and we say, we're not like that. But Jesus, he did everything perfectly. He obeyed the will of the Father. He did it all. And then his sacrificial death declares to us the seriousness of sin. And that the wage for sin is death and separation from God. That's the warning. Turn from sin. The wages of sin is death, ultimate banishment from God. And the church is to be like Daniel here. There is an application in this that we are like Daniel in the sense that we preach the truth about God to sinners. That we preach the truth and that we're in a situation like that. We call sin for what it is, calling everyone to repentance and to the hope of restoration and reconciliation. That's how we see Daniel operating here and we can learn from that. And because of Christ's righteousness and his resurrection, we have the power of God's Holy Spirit given to us to help us walk in obedience. We're not left to do this alone. And crazy as it may sound, it's interesting, right? But Nebuchadnezzar, he did not repent when he heard the warning in the interpretation of the dream. And there are people I know in our lives that we look at 
we wonder, why aren't they repenting? I've told them so many times. I've told them the gospel. I've warned them. I've talked to them. I've prayed for them for years. They're not repenting. And I hope this can bring some sort of comfort. In this, he lived, he lived in his sin and gave even 12 months more. It says after 12 months from the time of that interpretation, he's there on the rooftop praising himself. But the end of the seven years, after the consequence came, it says, at the appointed time by God, his reason was restored, and he praised God. God appoints that time. God's the one who brings restoration. So his final words, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So just a few thoughts to close. If, if you're needing repentance this morning, if you're in that place and God is speaking to your heart because sin has gripped you in some way, there's something holding on to you and you're walking in it, it's ruining you, and you know the consequences of remaining in sin, then this morning, heed the message as a merciful warning and turn to Christ. Amen? We need this. We need to pray this. We need to be humble about this. But if that's you, if God is calling you in that, if this word, if God's word is speaking to you, this is the reason for it this morning, that you would walk humbly. Turn from sin and walk in righteousness. Secondly, know that God is a merciful God and restores the humble. God is a merciful God and he restores the humble. At the beginning of Daniel, we saw Nebuchadnezzar taking the artifacts of the Jewish temple and de- and desecrating them, right? He desecrated them in the, in the Babylonian temple. That was the beginning of Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. Here in chapter 4, he's acknowledging that God is the most high and that his ways are right. That's a major transformation. God is a merciful God and restores the humble. Thirdly, and this goes for all of us, Deal rightly with your own sin and the sin of others. Be compassionate and caring, but be truthful and not vague. If we see people in sin in our lives and we care about them and love them, we will be filled with compassion for them and lovingly and graciously call them away from that sin that is hurting them and call them to Christ even if they don't listen, even if they're not listening. And finally, even more than dealing with our own sin and the sin of others, we need to recognize that nobody deals with sin better than Jesus Christ. He deals with sin and deals with sinners in the most merciful, compassionate, incredible way. Some of us, most of us in this room have experienced that. And if not, I pray you'll experience that you'll know it, that you'll come to him as a sinner and and experience his compassion and his love and his grace. And more than that, what he paid for you. At the cross is where we get the clearest view of God's love and justice. Love because he would pay that kind of price for us. So we see that he would pay that price for me. He would pay that price for you. We see God's love there at the cross. He paid for your sin. And justice because Jesus took what we deserved upon himself. See, God didn't didn't go without fulfilling his just will that sin be punished. He punished Jesus on our behalf. He is a just God. Sin is never left undealt with. It's either dealt with in eternity as we absorb it, or it's dealt with in Christ. And we trust him, and he absorbs the judgment that we deserve. That's the gospel. That is beautiful. And in light of that truth, We repent, we deal with sin, we humble ourselves. God restores us and we extol him as the most high God. So let's be serious about sin as we move, we transition into communion. Think about this, repent if necessary. Humble your heart. Don't be afraid to cry out to God. To ask God for forgiveness, he's the only one who can truly forgive you, ultimately and eternally. So that's going to be my prayer for you. We'll close in that, in that prayer that God would give this church a continual heart of repentance and none of us would be walking in that sort of sin.
but we would turn and humble ourselves. Father, we are grateful for your word. You are faithful to lovingly and graciously call us away from sin. Sin that destroys, sin that ultimately separates us from you, our holy God. I thank you that we see that perfectly in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the bread of life, the light of the world, the water that we need. Oh God, if we're walking in rebellion, if we've turned from you, if there's sin that's even just disrupting and hurting our life, even in Christ, our, the flesh part of us, the, the remaining sin, the part that still needs to be sanctified, if we've been feeding our flesh, if we've been giving up and giving space to the enemy and to the world, God, we pray you'd give each person in this room a heart of repentance. God, restore us. If we've experienced the ravaging of the world and the, the years that the locusts have eaten, God, restore those years. Even as we see with Nebuchadnezzar what you were able to do on that moment, on that day that he saw that heaven rules all things and he bowed and surrendered to your will. Help us to bow and surrender and humble ourselves. Thank you that there's ultimate restoration coming for those who trust in Christ. We get to be a part of your kingdom and your reign and your rule. And one day you will make all things right. And we'll reign with you there in that place, in a place of perfect peace in New Jerusalem with no sin and no death and no tears. And it will all be made complete. But Lord, help us tonight or today to humble ourselves and repent and turn and turn to Christ who lifts burdens, who is judged for us, and who offers us eternal life and forgiveness. Thank you, God, for saving sinners like us. Thank you for your word. Continue to work in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church or to find our gathering times and location, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.